and welcome to Spotlight with Sandhya. Joining us on the show today is Sheila Krishnaswamy, a nutrition and wellness consultant. Sheila has over 37 years of professional experience in this field. She also has a YouTube channel called Nutrition Nectar, where she talks about nutrition, health and wellness. She's a dear friend and I have benefited a lot from her advice. You know, I thought it would be a good point in time to discuss how the pandemic has affected our eating habits and our lifestyles. It's been more than a year now. And in the initial months or in the last year, a lot of people changed their eating habits for the better, right? They were cooking more at home and they were eating better. But I think this fatigue has set in. And I also feel that increasingly this work from home and blurring of lines between office and home, as well as the demands of running a family and a home or a house is becoming too taxing. So people are reverting to ordering from outside or eating junk food. Do you feel that this is happening, Sheila, because you consult with a lot of people? Have you also seen this trend? Uh, yes, to some extent, definitely. But there's also uh, another group of people who are becoming very health conscious. They want to eat right. They don't want to fall ill ever if that's possible. And they don't want to, uh, you know, they want to prevent things like diabetes and weight, weight issues and things like that. So apart from, of course, the infections and the illnesses. So there, there's a set of people who are actually improving their food habits and continuing to do so in spite of the, you know, being at home for the last year or year and a half. But you're right. On the other hand, there's another set of people who have actually, you know, they're so tired of cooking because they have been forced to cook for the last so many months. So they're really tired of doing that and they want to eat more of store-bought foods or packaged foods or, you know, all of that. And yes, so we have both sets of people. All right. So I would request you to tell us the five things that people should stop doing or stop eating stop following fad diets because this is when you know people are actually searching for a whole lot of diets online or talking to people and following one another's diets and all kinds of things so i think the first point that i would like to emphasize on is stop following or stop eating fad diets of and something that's that just catches your fancy stop eating foods with artificial colors you know, sometimes when we order food in, we find uh, some a dish which is very red or very green, unusually green or red or orange sometimes. Artificial colors, you know, uh, should be actually not used at all. But stop eating foods that have artificial colors. Look for natural appearances in dishes. It doesn't matter if it's even if it's brown or, you know, not very inviting. But I think it's health is more important than colors. Uh, stop eating foods that have a long list of additives, ultra processed foods, which, uh, which means, you know, the foods that are very, very highly processed, have a long list of additives, and very few original ingredients, uh, or the natural ingredients. So those are things that I would recommend people stop uh, eating, or at least reduce. Uh, also stop reusing oil over and over again. Even whether you're at home or whether you're eating in a restaurant or something, make sure that you're not 
using the same oil, you know, a kind of cycling the same oil over and over again. The oil can be used a couple of times at the most, but you know, take fresh oil always to use for whatever it could be for uh, seasoning or it could be for frying or sauteing or whatever it is. Do not use reused oil very often. And of course, the last thing I would like to say is do not go to unqualified people for diet advice because that happens a lot in our, in our country and everywhere, in fact, for that matter. Please approach qualified uh, you know, dietitians or nutritionists if you want an advice on what to eat, what not to eat, because that will be based, a qualified dietitian will always give advice based on individual requirements, the health status, the family history, the medical history, there's so many parameters to be considered while giving dietary advice. So it's important to meet a qualified person rather than, you know, just going to uh, go uh, falling prey to quackery. Right. So if people were to uh, get carried away by what their friends are doing and take up this intermittent fasting or a paleo diet or a keto <laughs> diet, you think before they do that, they should consult a nutritionist? Absolutely. Because, uh, you know, one diet, uh, one shoe doesn't fit all. Same, similarly, one diet doesn't suit everyone. So it's very important to individualize and to consult, uh, you know, a qualified person before right. uh, embarking on a diet. Can we talk about the five things that are good for the body, you know, good for people to eat? Yes, of course. Uh, I'm sure, uh, you know, the viewers know this already, but I would say seasonal vegetables, seasonal fruits, green leafy vegetables, nuts and seeds and hydration. I mean, there's plenty more that a person needs to eat, but I'm just listing five things. Uh, when I say hydration, it's not just water. It could be any other healthy beverage as well. So I think these five should be included regularly in everyone's diets. When you say hydrate and any other uh, beverage you're referring to, like a vegetable yeah. juice or a tender coconut or a buttermilk, things like that? Yeah, you said it all. It's uh, tender coconut water, buttermilk, uh, maybe fresh lime juice, uh, you know, anything that gives uh, hydration to the body. Even, oh. even like a clear soup or a, or a rasam gives a lot of hydration. Okay, that's interesting. I mean, these are the foods that are good for the body. Can you tell mm -hmm. us what are the foods that are good for the soul? You know, people are always seeking comfort food, a big bag of potato chips or uh, deep fried cheese uh, fingers. Those are, you know, I mean, maybe chicken butter masala or something like that. But what are the foods that actually make us feel good inside, uh, you know, our hearts and our soul so we don't crave for comfort foods? We don't have anything, at least in nutrition science doesn't say anything about, you know, foods that are good for the soul. But if you're referring to foods that will probably enhance the mood or make you feel calm. So there are some neurotransmitters in our body uh, which help us to remain calm and one of them is serotonin and serotonin is increased by eating complex carbohydrates or by taking foods that are rich in tryptophan. Tryptophan is one of the amino acids that is one of the protein molecules. So milk is a good source of tryptophan. So when a person takes a milk in adequate quantities, the tryptophan is converted to serotonin in the body and that helps to calm a person or helps to sometimes even sleep better at night or even complex carbohydrates. It could be like, you know, uh, brown rice or uh, 
millets or or uh, whole wheat chapatis and you know whole lot of complex carbohydrates when they are taken that also helps to release serotonin and gives a calming effect so yes it does help some of the foods do help in giving uh, some peace and calmness to a person but on the other hand when you say comfort food normally one reaches out for comfort foods when one is under stress so i think it's important to find out the cause for that uh, stressful situation and remove or prevent that from happening so that most likely when a person is stressed one tends to reach out to a sweet item you know it could be a chocolate or an ice cream or or something like that something that is sweet so i think it's important to a try and prevent that stressful situation and if that's not possible then reach out for something sweet it does not have to be an ice cream or a chocolate it could also be some dry fruits or or a banana which is very sweet or you know something that gives or something like um something like a kheer or paisa what we call or even a chikki or something like that which is a lot healthier than eating uh you know a, a high fat high sugar dessert nothing is really bad i you know i don't call any food as bad food it's just the food habits that are bad so there is no harm in eating dark chocolate if one enjoys chocolate then you know dark chocolate does have its benefits to some extent but don't go overboard you know if you want to have a piece of a small piece of dark chocolate after a meal that's okay if you want to have it over the weekend that's okay too but make sure that you know it is okay to eat that and it falls within your dietary requirement so that leads me into this next question which you also referred to you know about you know a glass of milk helping people sleep better is there anything else that they can do uh, what what should be the ideal time gap between their meal and dinner and what kind of food actually will help us get better sleep okay a great question because a lot of people do suffer from lack of sleep today especially in the urban areas normally we say about one and a half to 2 hours of time gap post dinner is a good time to go to bed so if one has sleeping issues or if one can't go to sleep immediately normally we tell them to ensure that the room where they sleep is completely dark meaning there are no lights and not to go to bed with a screen in their hand so it could be a mobile a mobile phone or it could be a small tv or it could be a laptop or any 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 screen electronic screen so don't go to bed with a with an electronic screen in your hand try and switch it off before you go to bed and then you know uh, you will fall asleep after some time that's e- that's easier said than done i guess but because a lot of people are used to taking you know their screens to the bed um second thing is a uh, third thing is of course like i said a glass of warm milk taken at night before bedtime definitely helps to improve uh, the sleep quality and the quantity and um, what else i tell sometimes i tell people you know read a very boring book <laughs> <laughs> something that you know which you are not interested in so take a book if it's something that bores you and you know you will fall asleep easily so that helps for some people read a boring book and you'll fall asleep in no time one thing that i'm curious about you know there are, seems to be two schools of thought so should people go uh, you know walk 100 steps after a meal especially dinner before they go and either go to bed or read a book or watch tv or uh, they should not exercise after a meal what is your theory both are right because 
one we don't advise rigorous exercise after after a meal but walking those you said 100 steps right so walking those 100 steps or well, could be 100 150 whatever but it's not like a brisk walk it's just a leisurely stroll so just moving about a little bit after dinner definitely helps helps to digest the food better also helps to you know control blood sugar uh, levels better and uh, may or actually also help to um, induce sleep so yes it does so it has to be a leisurely stroll it could be within the house or it could be outside you know um uh, in, in a park or wherever but yeah but not a uh, rigorous exercise definitely i mean we don't ask expect people to you know jump up and down and stuff like that from here yeah <laughs> talking about the benefits of eating the right food is there anything which is good for the brain you know arranging from students to people who are feeling overstressed with multitasking or even seniors who are worried about losing their memories there anything food that is good for the brain yes and no uh, we do say that uh, you know omega 3 fatty acid foods are very very essential for the brain and in fact when the brain development starts in infancy and you know early childhood that's when uh, adequate amount of iodine iron uh, and all of these foods are important and that helps in uh, overall development including the brain but uh, there is no specific brain food as such but foods that are high in omega 3 uh, fats like uh, fatty fish and for those who don't eat uh, meat or fish then there's uh, flax seed there's chia seed which are all very high in omega 3 uh, fatty acids and these uh, such foods like rajma spinach all of these uh, these kind of foods do help to maintain the omega 3 levels in the body and that will indirectly help the brain but having said that it's also important to ensure that the overall meal is well balanced because there are several uh, nutrients that play a role and there's also a lot of nutrient uh, um internutrient interaction that goes on in the body and the result is that you know the whole body brain everything is functioning well so it, there is no magic pill if that's what you're asking there's no magic pill to improve the memory or the brain health or whatever it is a, a combination of foods because all foods and nutrients work in synergy i would think that if it's a small family or a person living alone it's quite easy to have these well balanced meals what about um, larger families now you see you know uh, we have gone back to the stage where multi generational families are living together right you have small kids you have the parents who are working then you have the seniors so in in a situation like that and given the fact that we are living in a pandemic and all the stresses that's caused do you have any tips at all to families about how they can plan out well balanced meals sure um so it's very important to remember the five food groups and make sure all these five food groups are present in a days what should i say let's say the three meals in a day or whatever so the five food groups are cereals and grains so when i say cereals and grains it's uh, the uh, unpolished rice the you know the wheat uh, millets uh, it could be corn it it could be um oats all of these come under cereals and, and and grains right the second group is the pulses and dals so we have a, a whole variety of pulses and dals like you know tuwar dal moong rajma uh, chana could be anything so all of these this is the second group that we need the third group is the fruits and vegetables 
and I don't need to give examples. Everyone knows what the fruits and vegetables are. And the fourth group is the milk and meat. So for a person who does not eat meat, we still have milk that we can depend on for some of the nutrients, right? So the milk and meat is the fourth one. And the last one is the fats and the sugars. When I say fats and sugars, the, the oils, the ghee, the butter, all of that come under the fats group. And when, they, when I say sugars, the jaggery, honey, the, the, you know, the regular sugar, all of that comes. So that's the, uh, so if we have uh, these, uh, and of course we also have the nuts and seeds, right? So if we have all these food groups uh, combined in or rather shared between the three meals that we eat every day, in the right quantities, because when I say fats and sugars, that has actually to be the least, the minimum quantity in, you know, throughout the day. Nuts and seeds also in smaller quantities, because we can't be eating, you know, loads of that. The maximum uh, consumption should be coming from the fruits and vegetables. Then we have the cereals and grains, then the pulses and dals, then the nuts and seeds, and then we have the um, uh, the milk and meat, and then the uh, the fats and oils, so, uh, fats and uh, sugars. Sorry. So making a combination, using all these in various combinations, it could be a South Indian meal, it could be a North Indian meal, it could be an East Indian meal, or it could be a West Indian meal. So making that traditional home cooked meal will make sure that everybody gets to eat a healthy, well balanced uh, meal. But then if one has to individually you know, give advice, then it will depend on that individual needs and requirements. So Sheila, if you don't mind answering, our, our regular viewers have sent me some questions and I could uh, post them to you. And it would be very nice to get your answers. And Certainly. Okay. So you did talk about the importance of dairy, right? Uh, as part of these five food groups that people should have. But we see a lot of people have become vegans. And one uh, viewer has asked that her daughter, who's a young adult, has become a vegan. And she's worried whether it's healthy for her to give, out, uh, dairy, give up dairy products entirely. So um, interesting question. So uh, veganism is a choice of an individual. So if one chooses to uh, follow vegan diet, then one has to ensure that the vegan diet is wholesome. We can't say, okay, if, if I'm turning vegan and I give up, uh, you know, all the, all the meat and uh, uh, animal products, I can't be eating uh, potato chips and, uh, you know, it could be all plant foods, but if I'm eating potato chips and you know, all, all kinds of, uh, you know, fried items and things like that, that is vegan, but it's not going to be beneficial as far as my health goes. So even the vegan diet, as long as it's wholesome, it does meet all the necessary nutrients except vitamin B12. So vitamin B12, depending on the level of vitamin B12 that that individual has, he or she might have to take supplements because we already see a lot of vitamin B12 deficiency in today's population. So giving up animal foods is likely to, you know, uh, cause or increase this. So as, as long as supplementation can take care of vitamin B12, all other nutrients can be obtained from a vegan diet, but that person has to ensure that it's well-balanced and wholesome. Next question, which is, uh, I think from time immemorial, people have been asking, how do we get children eat healthy foods because you know like you said these potato chips and everything has become such a way of life so and it's 
much worse now because they're stuck at home and they're constantly occupied by all these devices either for their work or I mean their studies or their play? Um, tough question to answer. Um, but uh, I would like to say the first thing is I think parents need to set an example for the children. They need to become role models by eating healthy themselves. Uh, we can't expect parents to be eating ice creams and desserts and, you know, uh, pastries and potato chips and expect the child to be eating vegetables and fruits. That's not fair. So I think as long as parents become role models for the children, the children will also tend to imbibe that uh, or incul inculcate those uh, healthy eating habits. Second thing is involve children also in uh, maybe meal planning, menu planning for the week or even for a couple of days. So when we talk about, you know, uh, healthy and unhealthy and we involve children also in this process, they tend to understand better. And uh, another, another thing could be that, you know, uh, out of the seven days, six days, the parents choose what, uh, you know, what the menu should be. And the seventh day, one day of the week, the child chooses what the menu should be. So that way, the child also would get what he or she chooses. And it could be anything. And I think it's also up to the parents to try and make the, what we call, you know, unhealthy uh, item into a healthier version. It is possible, right? So these are the small changes that, uh, you know, if one can use, perhaps the children will start to eat better. Uh, and of course, dialoguing, you know, eating together also matters a lot, I think you know, family meals and stuff like that. Dialoguing about, uh, you know, healthy eating, nutrition in small ways, I think will help to improve the child's uh, food habits. Yes, I mean, that's a very, very timely uh, suggestion, Sheila, if I may say so, because I remember our childhood where mealtimes were all, the, all the family members were around the dining table and it used to be so, you know, engaging and we got to know about each other's likes and dislikes, our, what was happening in our lives instead of actually everybody taking a plate or a tray and going off to their own rooms. That's a very timely suggestion. Yeah. Thank you, Sheila. So now we come to, uh, you know, uh, women who are reaching menopause, and I have a question from a person who says, I do yoga every day and I'm quite active, but I feel that every day when I wake up in the morning, my muscles are hurting and my bones are hurting. Is it a natural process of aging or do you think I'm lacking something in my diet? Not easy to answer this question offhand because uh, yes and no, it could be uh, a natural process of aging. But you said this lady is middle-aged, right? Yeah. I mean, middle-aged now, it's a very wide definition, right? I think she's in her <laughs> mid-40s. <laughs> okay. But even if she is in her 40s or 50s, I don't think there should be any uh, stiffness, you know, when one gets up. So perhaps she should, uh, you know, meet with her physician or get a, maybe get a test done to see if she has any deficiency because there's no point in, you know, changing the diet without understanding if there is an underlying problem, right? Okay. So perhaps, yeah, that would be a better thing to do. Okay. So uh, do you advise uh, menopausal women to start taking any supplements that will help them in their condition? Not really. Not really. Uh, dietary supplements, definitely not needed. Unless, again, there is a deficiency of some sort, you know, there might be uh, 
some women might find that they're deficient in maybe some of their minerals or vitamins or something like that. And if there is a deficiency which is actually causing a health problem, then yes, supplementation is required. But otherwise, if there is no deficiency, there is no point in taking the supplement at all. In fact, long-term use of unnecessary supplements can actually lead to problems, health problems. So I would suggest that you know people just don't blindly go to a pharmacy or you know and just uh, buy supplements off the counter and start using them without uh, without understanding the need for it, whether there is a need for it or not. Uh, I think it's very important to understand. So I. You know, as a blanket statement, I cannot say that everybody needs to, all women who have reached the stage of menopause need to start taking supplements. No, it has to be individualized. And actually, most people do not need supplements if their diet is healthy and if they are physically active. We don't need supplementation. Most people tend to take take calcium supplementation. But why don't we instead start to, uh, you know, be more physically active, which helps retain calcium in the bones and, uh, you know, reduce our sodium intake, which again helps to retain calcium in the body because too much of salt and too much of sodium in the diet can actually, you know, gradually leach out the calcium. So reduce the sodium instead, reduce the salt instead, uh, be active, do exercises regularly, even go for a walk or whatever you're comfortable with. So we should actually look at ways and means of uh, retaining calcium in the body rather than the minute we hit menopause, start taking calcium supplements. Right. So now I have a question from a senior who's undergone a surgery last year and she's not able to exercise and can't even go for a walk because of the lockdown timings and things like that. So she says... Her only exercise is watching TV, changing the channels, and uh, she can feel her tummy growing in size. So she wants to know what she can do. And uh, she, uh, you know, I mean, she used to be fairly fit, but now she's feeling very terrible that she cannot be so fit. And how does she get to feel healthier? Okay. If she has undergone a surgery last month or last year? Last year. Last year. Last year. Okay, if it is last year, then I don't see any reason why she should not be getting back to her normal life now. But maybe there's a reason, I don't know. So she will have to consult her surgeon or physician, you know, when she can get back to her normal physical activity. Because physical activity, especially people who have recovered from surgery, uh, they need to get back to uh, either... If they cannot start, you know, uh, their normal physical activity, they can undergo some rehabilitation programs where some kind of a movement, you know, physiotherapy or any such thing, where there's some kind of a movement for the muscles and for the body. And the physiotherapist knows best because he or she will be able to guide us as to what exercises we can do post-surgically. Maybe for a week or 10 days or a month, maybe one will not be allowed to do any exercises. But then after that, exercises are allowed maybe different forms of exercises or easy ones but I don't know why it is you know why she hasn't done it for a year but she needs to I think uh, you know consult the expert whoever she has met Uh, second thing is about the tummy growing again exercise uh, you know the the abdominal muscles need to need some uh, activity exercising other than again she need to Right. <laughs> right. So uh, she again will need to consult her, you know, her physician for that. 
Right. And as far as food is concerned, I mean, the same old rules apply to everybody. Eat healthy. And I'm sure she will, she should be able to eat solid food if she has undergone the surgery a year ago. She won't be in any kind of a special diet is what I'm presuming because I don't know the detailed case. So if she is already on a normal diet, then she should be eating healthy. Um, another person wants, wants to know, do you have any suggestions for senior citizens to overcome constipation? Oh, yeah. In fact, uh, that is a common problem uh, we see amongst senior citizens. Basically, fiber and hydration. These are the two important things that senior citizens uh, need to keep in mind. Uh, too much of fiber might cause you know, uh, disturbance in their stomach and cause a lot of gas formation and things like that. So, But then too little also will cause constant. Uh, so there has to be, uh, you know, chew or if they can't digest. But then uh, some amount of uh, cooked vegetables, maybe uh, one or two fruits a day and eating whole grains instead of refined grains. These are the small things that the elderly can do in order to prevent constipation and also take enough uh, hydration, enough amount of water because normally the elders don't feel thirsty very easily, although the body requires hydration. So they need to be conscious about you know, the amount of water they drink and all of that. And that does help to prevent constipation. Okay, so one last question. I know I've been really asking you a whole laundry list of questions. One oh, last question. <laughs> uh, you know, a lot of people who are very athletic, though they're trying their best to go around uh, these lockdown restrictions and stay as active as they could, they're not able to reach that peak level of activity. So should they then be modifying their diets because they have a very set pattern of eating and now do they what, what kind of adjustment should they do? I guess they were, during their athletic times, they would have probably been eating extra uh, calories, extra carbohydrates, extra fat and extra protein. Um, so that is something that they need to bring down now. Uh, definitely the fat part of it, the uh, fat will have to be reduced. The carbohydrates also will have to be reduced. Protein, if they're taking an excess, then that needs to be reduced. But if they're taking the regular intake of protein, that's they can continue with that. So uh, an overall calorie intake also will have to be reduced because they're not using that much calories in their daily uh, you know, physical activity. If they're, uh, they're probably not uh, you know, going for their practice and games and all of that, but uh, I'm sure they would be doing some kind of weight maintenance program or muscle maintenance program or something like that at, at home or wherever they live you know, in that area. They would be probably doing some physical activity or the other. So maybe weight training, maybe, uh, you know, uh, aerobics, being at home, one can do all of these, right? So or maybe some flexibility exercises and all of that. So as long as that is there uh, and, you know, reduction in total calorie intake, especially fats and carbohydrates, I think that'll help them. Okay, talking about carbohydrates, I had missed a question. So this is a person who says, why does rice have such a bad name i would actually like to know the answer to that question too because uh, <laughs> we don't i mean as dietitians we don't ask people to uh, stop eating rice at all so and we are very well aware that in india in the south we are all rice eaters right in the north they eat uh, uh, chapatis mostly wheat but in the south we're used to eating millets and rice so we don't have to stop eating rice at all and we don't need to, you know, every household doesn't have to start making chapatis uh, instead of uh, making rice. No, it can be a part of rice, can be a part of uh, one's meal. But perhaps why it has got a bad name is because, uh, you know, we have moved away from eating 
uh, hand pounded and unpolished rice to eating uh, very white rice. You know, the whiter it is, the better it is, is what we feel. So we are actually going by the appearance rather than the, the nutrition. So if we can go back to eating the unpolished or the hand pounded rice or even the parboiled rice, which the coastal belt eats, even that is great because that has so much of nutrition. So rice is definitely not banned from our diets. We haven't banned them. If one wants to uh, give up rice for whatever reason, that's a personal choice, but there's no need to ban rice from a diet. I know I have you to thank for reintroducing rice into my life. And thank you. That's really worked out well for me. I'm glad. Thank you for your patience and for answering all these questions so very well. Thank you so much, Sheila. My pleasure, Sandhya. Thank you for the opportunity. It was lovely chatting with you. You can also view the interview as a video on the Raintree Media YouTube channel. Do subscribe to the Raintree Media channel on YouTube. Like, comment and share the videos.